We're going to continue our study in Philippians, um, just a couple of verses this morning. The title of my sermon is Side by Side, Side by Side. The big idea, the church must pursue unity for the sake of the gospel. Um, When I was in Cameroon back in 2010, teaching at a Baptist seminary, um, I, I found several men that were just a couple years younger than me, right? Most of my students were my age or younger, uh, some even older, <laughs> so it's funny. But um, I was teaching at both the master's and uh, undergraduate level, and I just found students in my classes that really seemed to love Jesus, were serious about the gospel, wanted to do you know, full-time gospel ministry, and I said, hey, can I start meeting with you guys? And so I had about, I think, six or seven men that on Friday nights would come to my house and I'd provide cookies and, like, the Coke and the big bottles. And we would do a Bible study. We'd pray together. And then at the end of the night, we'd watch a movie. <laughs> and they loved that. And so one of the movies that I brought was Remember the Titans. It's one of my all-time favorite sports movies. Uh, it's during the, the time when there was the transition from segregation to integration. And this is taking place in the South in Virginia and there's a school that was an all-white school and then an all-black school, and they bring the students together, and you see how this is affecting the football team, right? And so the players don't want to be together, obviously. They're all competing now for the same positions, and then they go to camp together, right? And at camp, like when they're getting ready to head off, there's two buses, and the white players all go to one bus, and the black players all go to one bus, and the coaches says, no, we're not going to do this. Like, we're going to mix it up. We're going to get to know each other. <clears throat> they put white players with black players in, in rooms, and things are just not going well at camp. But then there is the scene, and I am a crier. Listen, I, movies get me. There's that scene when they're practicing, and the one player says, left side, and the other guy goes, strong side, and they just keep going back and forth, and they just like, they're jumping up and down, and like something clicks. And they come together as a team. And it's, just, it's beautiful. And I love it. I'm just like, uh, uh, and this ugly, highly laughs at me when we watch movies. And, uh, but it's just a sweet scene, right? Because, again, they were divided as a team, and they come together at camp, and that changes the trajectory of the season, right? They come back strong. They're playing together. Now, what would have happened if division had remained? We wouldn't know the movie, Remember the Titans, right? There wouldn't have been a winning season. There'd be no great story to tell. But what you see throughout the movie is that pockets of division remain. And if those little pockets of division are left unchecked, what happens? It affects the whole team, right? Unity is so important. If we are, and I'm not going to use the word successful, But if we are to be faithful as a church to the great commission, to the ministry of the gospel, we as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, must be united. We must be together. Again, church, we must be united, working together side by side for the advancement of the gospel. Amen? And again, the phrase that I picked up when I lived in Africa was, we are together. I love that. We are, as a church, we're together. We're together. Same Lord, same 
Spirit, same baptism, we are together. What I want to start off doing today, um, I want to kind of let you know where we're going to be headed the next couple of weeks, but I want to review last week. It's important. Context is important, right? Jesus is king. Context is queen. And I borrowed that from a professor in seminary, but it's true. Jesus is king. But context is so important for understanding the intended meaning of the text. So what we're going to see for the next three weeks in Philippians 4, 2 to 9, we're just looking at the first two verses, 2 and 3 this morning, but those verses, these three back-to-back-to-back passages present us with the fruit, everybody say fruit, we like fruit, I like fruit, the fruit of sanctification, okay? Now, the means, the the how-to of our sanctification is found in Philippians 1.27, that's the beginning of a section, and Philippians 4.1, and what's found between those verses. What we see in this larger section, as reviewed last week, is that we stand firm, which is perseverance language, we stand firm by looking to godly examples, maintaining gospel joy, being on guard against what? False teachers, remembering the gospel and its glorious result, which is our sanct- our, sorry, our justification, and then out of our justification flows our sanctification, and we persevere by embracing as a church a singular focus. What was Paul's singular focus? Focus. What was he striving for? What was he running towards? I think I heard a snap. I'm a little heavier now than I used to be. Gotta be careful. Goodness. Did y'all hear that? A little snap. We're good. What was Paul's singular focus? Resurrection life. He longed for the resurrection life. And what does the resurrection entail? Not just new bodies that are no longer given over to sickness and disease, but what? The the eradication of our sin nature, right? No more sin nature. We will know Christ fully and will be fully conformed to his likeness. Paul longed for that in the present. He longed for his sin nature to be eradicated. He longed to know Christ fully, and he longed to be conformed fully to the image of Jesus. However, this is really important. First and foremost... We stand firm through our union with Christ and by means of the power of the Holy Spirit, okay? Now, I didn't get into this last week as much as I wanted to. I mentioned that I was hungry. I like sandwiches, okay? You see this in Mark a lot, Mark's gospel, but Paul does it as well the sandwich structure or the sandwich device. It's a literary device where the author will begin a section and end a section by using the same theme or the same key word. Now, listen, this is so important. So this big section, this is the main section in Philippians. Philippians 127 all the way to 4.1. 127, we have the verbal language of standing firm. And then 4.1, stand firm. It's an imperative, a command, stand firm in the Lord. So standing firm in the one spirit, which we identified as the Holy Spirit. So we stand firm in the spirit. And then at the very end of that section, if you weren't listening, what does he say? I'm not sure why I'm moving so much, but stand firm in the Lord. What happens between 
127 and 4.1, he's unpacking what it looks like to stand firm, right? How do we do it? What's the sandwich telling us? What appears on the outside helps us to make sense of what's on the inside. We stand firm by means of our union with Christ and by the power of the Spirit. One thing I wanted to point out last week that I didn't have time to, I do this morning. In the immediate context surrounding, again, Philippians 1.27 and Philippians 4.1, we have the mention of the Philippians' heavenly citizenship. The original Greek, because again, the New Testament is written in Greek, the original Greek of Philippians 1.27 reads, but our, I'm sorry, here it is, live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So Paul is saying live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. What citizenship is he referring to? Heavenly citizenship, right? He's saying you belong to heaven. You're citizens of heaven. And then in Philippians 3.20, which is just before chapter 4, verse 1, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I mention this? Those who belong to heaven are called and empowered to stand firm, to persevere. Why do we stand firm? Because we belong to heaven. And citizens of heaven do what? They stand firm. They persevere in the Lord. They get on with their sanctification. Amen? Are you a a citizen of heaven today? If you're a Christian, you should say with a resounding what? Yes. So what should you be doing? Standing firm. Standing firm. Those who belong to heaven are called and empowered to put that heavenly citizenship on display before the watching world. And what that looks like is found in Philippians chapter 4, 2 to 9, which is really the fruit of our sanctification. So what do we see in Philippians 4, 2 and 3? What particular fruit or evidence of sanctification does Paul highlight? I got two points. Number one, pursue unity in the church. That is the fruit of our sanctification. If we've been justified and we're getting on with our sanctification, being conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ, what should be seen in the church? We are together, united, working together side by side to advance the, the gospel. Philippians 4.2, I entreat Euodia. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Haley and I got in an argument when we were having Sam as far as what her name was going to be. I really liked Euodia and Syntyche, one of those. And she said no. And so we named her Samantha. They have a ring to them. I mean, Euodia. I don't know. The language here, he uses the same verb twice, entreat. Paul is passionate about his plea, his entreaty. Okay, the, the verb he uses, parakaleo, it means to urge, to plead, almost to beg. He's begging. What action is he begging for, pleading for, urging? Paul is calling these two women to agree in the Lord. Now, the Greek literally reads, to thank the same in the Lord. The Greek verb used here is phroneo, and it's in the present tense, and that's significant. What does that mean, friends? That our unity should be just sometimes? It should be ongoing. 
our unity in the church should be continuous, ongoing. Now, the word itself, phroneo, means to have a particular attitude or to think in a particular manner. So, think attitudes and values. Attitudes and values. Paul was calling these women, Euodia and Syntyche, to have the same attitude and values. But then he gets more specific. He uses the phrase, in the Lord. They were to have the same attitude and values as who? Jesus, their Savior. Not only that, but Paul was pointing to Christ as the source and example for the church's unity. Now, this is not the first time that Paul uses such language in his letter. Let's go all the way back to Philippians 2.2. Where? 2.2, all right? Philippians 2.2. Paul says, complete my joy, same verb, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What does Paul desire for the church? That we be together, that we be united, working together to advance the... There's a phrase I'm going to say about five or six times this morning, and it's this. There is no gospel ministry in the church without unity. There's not. It won't happen, okay? Again, Paul entreats here in Philippians 2.2 the church to have the same attitude and values. And then what does he do? This is really helpful. He points them to Christ, the source and example for the church's unity. Verse 5. So, Philippians 2.5, have this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's doing? What is Paul doing? Who should we be thinking like, church? Who should inform our values and our attitudes together? Jesus. That's sanctification, looking like Jesus, right? And when we're not looking like Jesus, what should we do? Start looking like Jesus. Paul then goes on to highlight the selfless, sacrificial love of Christ. This was to characterize the church, especially in their relationships with each other. Ralph Martin notes, the common mind they are to share, talking about the believers in Philippi, is reconciliation and mutual love, is one which sets the good of the church above personal interest and finds its inspiration in the lowliness of the incarnate Lord and the standard he expects of his people. Again, we're not giving details. Like, what, you know, what's going on? Is it Marvin Gaye? What's going on? Can't do his voice. But again, like, you read this, you know, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree, and Lord, what's going on with these ladies? Like, what was happening? We're not giving details. But obviously, something had come between these ladies. And it had potentially damaging repercussions for the church. And we're going to look at how this works shortly. Namely the question, why is division between members of the body so damaging to the church family? We're going to come there shortly. But the issue addressed back in Philippians 2 concerns rivalry and conceit. And it's likely that this was the issue affecting these women. Their motives, Euodia and Syntyche, their motives were not in line with Christ. If it was something like competition, then these women were obviously not united. They weren't working together side by side for the advancement of the gospel. Something was preventing their unity. 
And again, a lack of unity means no what? No gospel ministry. Gospel ministry will not happen in the church without unity. Okay, for example, believers in the church may be more concerned about their pet ministry. That's my Sunday school class. Nobody touched my Sunday school class. I don't care if I'm dying. I'm teaching that class, right? I'll be there. Man, you can't even talk. Don't matter. I'll sign. (laughs) Believers in the church may be more concerned about their pet ministries and thus their own reputations than the actual mission of the church in the glory of God. Lord, help us. I'm reminded when I was studying this week of Mark 10. James and John make a request to Jesus. Are you familiar with this passage? And then Jesus responds really in Mark 10.45. But in Mark 10.37, James and John request from Jesus positions of power in his kingdom. Right? We want to sit at your right and at your left. We want to be the men, the guys. Their agenda does not line up with who? With Jesus, obviously. So Jesus corrects their thinking. He acknowledges that greatness, according to the world's standards, relates to positions of power and prestige, but not so in his kingdom. Greatness in his kingdom takes the form of what? Service. And then Jesus points to his own example in Mark ten forty five, where he declares, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. James and John needed to unite their thinking with who? With Jesus. Euodia and Syntyche needed to unite their thinking with who? With Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying. And if we don't do that, church, is gospel ministry going to happen? Say it in Spanish. Where's Luis? No. He corrected me Wednesday night. He says, not no, it's no. And I was like, well, that just throws off the whole joke, man. Thank you. No, I love you, brother. Thank you for that. No. Again, we know because of our sin nature, we often aspire to have our own reputations and names exalted. But the church must boast in who? The church must boast in Christ. We must seek his glory and not our own. This is the attitude and value of the kingdom of God. We must think this way together. Again, church, we must be concerned about whose reputation, whose glory, whose kingdom agenda. Not ours, but Christ's. Christ's. Now, the fact that Paul appeals to both women makes it clear that both were guilty. Again, Paul singled out both ladies. Again, we're not told the nature of the disagreement, only that it needed to be what? Dealt with. And that the solution for these ladies was for them to agree in the Lord. I think we can agree that these ladies had lost their singular focus. They had let other things, lesser things, come between them and distract them from the ultimate thing. And what is that? What is the ultimate thing, church? Paul demonstrates it for us just a few chapters before. The ultimate thing, church, is an all-out pursuit to know Christ more, to be more conformed to him, and to what? Proclaim him more in all this for our glory. No, for his glory. And again, Paul demonstrates this for the church throughout his letter. He lived to know Christ more and to make Christ known. 
this singular purpose is to unite the church. Why do we gather, church? To know Christ more and to make him known more. Amen? Not worried about my agenda, my pet ministries. I'm worried about, I'm concerned about Christ and his glory and the advancement of his name. Again, this singular focus is to unite the church. This is to be our goal together, our purpose for the church. Again, to know Christ more and to make him known more. Now, what do we know about these ladies? What do we know about them, Euodia and Syntyche? Man, I could have had a little Yodia, but I love Samantha, so we'll, just, we'll leave it at that. They have labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. So these women are active church members involved in the gospel. And later Paul tells us their names are in the book of life. These are believers marked for heaven. And yet there is an issue, a sin issue, that was significant enough that it warranted a public address by Paul. I mean, can you imagine, like, you're sitting with the church, you're, you're listening to Paul's letter be read, and then all of a sudden you hear your name, and it's not in, in a good context. He's not praising them like he does uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus. It's, hey, ladies, oh, this thing, no, that's not what he says. Ladies, let's make this right. Thank the same in the Lord. Sorry about that. It just, again, sometimes it happens. These ladies were at odds. Sin had reared its ugly head in the local church, as it often does. Why address this? Why would, now, this is important, and I, I told you we'd come back to this, right? The potentially damaging effects of disunity in the church, how, how even division between two members can cause what? Chaos for the rest of the body. So again, why address this? Why was this particular issue so significant? Why is division so damaging to the church? I don't think I put this in your notes, but you can write it down. I would argue that division is the greatest threat to the church and its mission. Division is the greatest threat to the church and its mission. Recall Jesus' words. Let's look at Jesus in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Okay, so again, if the body of Christ, believers in the church, are loving each other, what does it say? We're disciples of Jesus. That's a great thing, amen? Our love for each other demonstrates who we belong to. Now let's go to John 17, and this is Jesus' prayer for the church, verses 20 and 21. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. So this marks a transition in Jesus' prayer from praying for the 12 to now praying for the future church, those who will believe because of their testimony. Okay, so now Jesus prays for us, and he still prays for us today. Amen? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen, when we fail to be united, our discipleship, our allegiance to Jesus is no longer discernible to the watching world. Again, when we fail to be united, 
our discipleship, our allegiance to Jesus is no longer discernible to the watching world. Not only that, but according to John 17, the gospel itself is lost. A church divided is unable to convey and proclaim the message that Jesus is king. Again, the Lord's will, as seen in his prayer to the Father in John 17, is that we be one. That we be one. Our oneness, our oneness is so that the world may believe that Jesus is the sent one, and that is shorthand for the Messiah, that he is the Messiah, the promised king. Our unity declares the gospel. Is that significant? That's pretty powerful that our unity has the potential, the power to declare the gospel. Again, our unity, it really supports the message we proclaim. Jesus prays for unity for the sake of ministry. And without unity, there is no what? There is no ministry. Now, what do we learn from our passage? Even the church, even the church is not immune to division. Sin still shows up in the church, does it not? J.A. Motyer writes, Relationships can become atrociously tangled, and Christian relationships are no exceptions. It is important that division and disharmony be dealt with for the sake of the gospel and the overall health of the church. And the solution is that believers seek Christ in his example. Peter O'Brien writes, the expression to think the same, right, that's phroneo, to think the same, to have the same attitude and values, is an appeal, he writes, to a Euodia and Syntyche to be at one in their mental attitude and so in the basic direction and orientation of their behavior. And this is what I really like that he said. Undoubtedly, this would involve their having right attitudes toward each other and thus an ability to work together in harmony. Here's the point. The gospel is bigger than our petty disputes. Amen? It really is. Is the gospel bigger than our pride? Yes. Is the gospel bigger than us? Yes. And the gospel demands that we work together side by side for the spread of the matchless fame of Jesus Christ. Paul's point in all of this is to show how division between individuals in the church has the potential to affect and infect the whole church. And like an infection, it will spread and cause great damage. So it must be dealt with. Here's some practice steps, and then we'll move on to our last point. I don't want you to raise your hand, by the way, because I'll come running. In love, because what we're going to see in our next point is... If there is division in the church, it's not the church's job just to look on as bystanders, but to come alongside and help bring unity and peace. Amen? Blessed are the peacemakers. So here's the question. Are you at odds with a fellow believer today? Have you allowed something to come between you and a brother or sister in Christ that is precluding you from serving with them. Here's an example. Maybe there's a, a, a ministry, right? Maybe there's an event, and there's a sign-up sheet, and you're excited to be a part of it, but then you see that person's name. Oh, man, they're going to be there. 
uh, you know, I do have a busy weekend, so maybe I'll sit this one out. That is sinful. What's going on there? What has not been dealt with? Is there harmony between you two? Obviously not, because you won't even serve with them. Friends, that is sin. That is wrong. Repent. (laughs) Have the mind of Christ. Again, what is Christ's will for his church? He prayed it in John 17, that we be what? We be one. As him and the Father are one. And if we're not one, if we're not united, is gospel ministry going to happen? No. Next, if there is sin in the church, deal with it. If you personally have hurt a brother or sister in Christ with your words, if you are holding a grudge or are bitter towards another believer, deal with that today. Deal with that today. Let nothing hinder the advancement of the gospel through the church. And then lastly, is there anything distracting you from your singular focus of knowing Christ more and making him known more? Repent of that today. Is there anything distracting you right now from that singular focus, which is to unite all believers? And what is that? What is that singular focus? To know Christ more and to make him known more. Is there anything distracting you from that today? If so, repent of that. All right, the next point's pretty short, but it's so important. It's based on verse 3. How else does Paul push for unity in the church? Number two, help fellow believers pursue unity in the church. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these ladies, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul doesn't wish for the church to serve as bystanders and onlookers, but to actually get involved to help bring unity where there is division. So think of it this way. Maintaining unity, maintaining unity in the body of Christ is a church-wide project. Amen? If you're a part of this body, guess what? Get involved. Get involved. Pray. Pray. In verse 3, Paul addresses a true companion. So Paul uses two words here that together mean true or uh, genuine fellow worker. Now, (laughs) this is, I guess, you know, why PhD work is fun. You know, you try to find out or figure out who is this true companion. So scholars, there are a lot of views out there. It's been debated for a long time. Some scholars argue that true companion is simply a reference to the church as a whole, and that this singular phrase, true companion, is used to denote their unity, right? As a church, true companion, help these ladies. However, it probably makes more sense to see this as an individual in the church, most likely an elder, a pastor. What's significant, though, and this is what's important, is that Paul is calling the church to help. He's not simply saying, hey, guys, let these ladies figure it out. But rather, church, help these ladies. Help these ladies. Again, Paul uses the verb. It's a tough one. Su lambanomai. 
What does it mean? To help by taking part with someone in an activity to support. Paul is saying, support these ladies. Help them. Work together. Help them. Matthew Harmon notes, the imagery is of coming alongside these two women to resolve their conflict. Again, it's not, hey, guys, just let it work itself out. They'll figure it out. No, he's calling the church to do what? Help them. Support them. Why? Because without unity, there's what? There's no gospel ministry. There's not. So what's the goal here? What's the goal, church? To help them think the same. To help them have the same attitude and values as who? As Christ. Again, the goal is to bring them to Christ. How do we do that? If we see two believers budding heads, their attitudes are not in line with Jesus. They're not obviously valuing the kingdom and its advancement. They've lost that singular focus. Where's that singular focus found? In the, the Word. So what do we bring before them? The, the Word. The Word of God. Amen? The Word points us to Christ. The Word must inform our thinking, our attitude. If you know that sin is affecting relationships in the church, bring the Word before your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, sadly, sadly, many in the church see disputes as an opportunity to bolster their own spiritual pride. Well, at least that's not me. Right? Who's been guilty of that? At least that's not me. I feel pretty good about myself today. I'm not acting crazy. I'm not acting a fool. Lord, I'm doing all right. That's sinful. Come on. You should be heartbroken. You should be burdened by what you see. Oftentimes, we see disputes as a form of entertainment. Man, I wonder what she's going to say. No. What should we do, church? We should pray. We should get on our knees. And we should bring them to the, the Word. And we should plead for what? Unity. Think the same. Man, may your attitude and your values be informed by Christ. Repent. Come together because without unity there is what? There is no, no gospel ministry. Some may wonder, what is my vocation as a Christian, as a church member? What's my vocation? Well, you know, we wear several hats, okay? But one of those hats is peacemaker. Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That is our vocation, one of our vocations in the church. We are to function as ongoing peacemakers. If two believers are at odds, we must come alongside them and help them to pursue relational harmony, peace. For the sake of the health of God's church and for the sake of the church's witness. Man, listen, there is nothing uglier than division, right? Have you ever been in a home where the husband and the wife were at odds, always fighting, always bickering? Maybe you have family like that, and during Christmas or the holidays, you, you, they host, and it's just, it's painful. Because you just see them at each other's throats, not literally, but just fighting, and it's ugly. And the kids are asking questions like, why does he talk to her like that? What's going on? Do we enjoy that? No. And when that happens in the church, what must we do? 
we must function as peacemakers. And we bring them to the, the Word of God for the sake of the church's health and witness. Amen? What, and this is so helpful, okay? What is at the heart of this call to reconciliation and unity? How does Paul ground his entreaty, his plea? Ladies, thank the same in the Lord. Church, help these women. Why? What does he ground that in? What does he base that entreaty on? Verse 3, whose names are in the book of life. This equates to salvation. Revelation 20, 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, right? So to have your name in the book of life means you're a what? You're a believer, okay? You've been marked. You're a believer. You've trusted in Jesus. Paul is saying, ladies, (laughs) ladies, be reconciled. Work together. Think like Jesus. Why? Because you're saved. And that's how saved people live. Amen? What did he appeal to earlier? Remember? What, what surrounds Philippians 1.27 and Philippians 4.1? What does he mention? Our heavenly citizenship. If you're a citizen of heaven, you should live as a citizen of heaven. Which means we should be united. Because if we're not united, what's not going to happen? Gospel ministry. Christians, act like Christians. You've been rescued. You belong to God. Act like it. You're citizens of heaven. Act like it. That's what Paul's saying. Your names are in the book of life. Act like it. I've mentioned Michael Voss, my first Christian friend. He's a pastor in Montana. Do you know that we had a falling out after high school? We went to Montana on a road trip. This was our senior trip. We followed his parents up there. He's from Montana. His aunt and uncle and cousins live there, really close to the border of Canada. It was a great trip. We had so much fun. We drove my 86 Toyota pickup. It's a good truck. Nicknamed at Hudson High School the Trailmaster. Well, it broke down twice. More like the trail disaster. I mean, come on, man. A two-week trip turned into four weeks. We were stranded in Heron, Montana, and later in Casper, Wyoming. And it was not fun. It was not fun. It cost a lot of money. I didn't get back for college. I was like, I had like two days before college started. It was miserable. And we got back, I think, just spending so much time together. We got in a few arguments, disputes. We had a falling out. We stopped hanging out. We were not acting Christ-like. And then my sister, my little sister, sat us down and said, y'all need to stop this. This is stupid. Y'all are best friends. You guys love each other. Make this right. (laughs) And we did. And we did. Is this happening in the church? That's my question. Is this happening? Are those types of conversations happening in the church? Again, we mustn't relegate the Christian faith to a private enterprise. The the Christian faith is public. When we see believers at odds, we must get involved. We must intervene. Again, what's the word? Help, provide support. Not drop an elbow bomb, but come alongside them and bring them to the word. 
Why? Because we care about the unity of the church. Why? Because we know that without unity, there is no gospel ministry. And such work gives evidence of the family we belong to. A family works things out, amen? A family comes back to the dinner table. And that's what we have to do. We gather again on the Lord's Day and throughout the week. And if, and if there's a problem or an issue, we deal with it because we care about the unity of the church. That is God's will for us as prayed by Jesus in John 17. And again, without unity, there is no gospel ministry. This is an important work. You know, this is emphasized throughout the New Testament. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, you who are walking by the Spirit, you who, again, that's just shorthand for believer. You're a believer. You're spiritual. What? You should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. James 5, 19 and 20. I, I taught on this recently. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, what's assumed there? That believers in the church have gotten involved. Someone has wondered. Someone in the church has brought them back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What is the takeaway from these two passages? We aren't to leave our brothers and sisters alone. We're not. We are to help those struggling with sin. We are to help those at odds within the family of faith. A word on the Trinity. This will be helpful. We believe in one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The one God who has existed forever in perfect triune fellowship, united together in the plan of salvation. Amen? Jesus didn't go kicking and screaming to the cross. That was their will together before the foundation of the world, united. And we were made in the image of that triune God. We were made for unity. But what messed things up? Sin. What brings unity where formerly division reigned? The gospel. Amen? The gospel. Sin brings division, but the gospel brings unity, restoration. How does this idea of peace or unity help us to better understand the gospel? Two passages. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the vertical unity. Formerly at odds, formerly not at peace, but at enmity. Now, through trusting in Jesus, we are united to God. We have fellowship with God. We have peace with God. Amen? Okay, so there's the vertical component, but listen to 1 John 1, 3, and 4. John says, that which we have seen, talking about the incarnate Savior Jesus, that which we have seen and, and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. Horizontal. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy and your joy may be complete. The gospel brings unity at both the vertical and horizontal levels. Therefore, we must seek to maintain what? Unity. We must pursue it. The Spirit works to produce unity in the church so that we reflect the triune God in whose image we've been made and by whom we've been restored. Amen? Now listen, friends. The purpose of the gospel is to what? 
reconcile us to God, and to restore the image that has been fragmented because of the fall. When we're not acting together in unity, that image is lost. Therefore, without unity, we cannot do gospel ministry. I'm going to pick on Aaron. So back in March, when I was here in view of a call, I had dinner at your house. And man, it was so great. Remember that? I mean, I, I kind of raved about that. It wasn't just because we had a great meal. We did. We had guacamoles. We had street tacos and that white queso, and I was a better man because of it. <laughs> but, listen, seriously, and this was very simple. They weren't putting on a show. I just got to watch this family. AJ was gone, right? He was in Hawaii suffering. Uh, but, kidding, right? Hawaii, kidding me? But you had the three girls there. And I just sat down at the table with you guys until midnight and just watched you, brother, love on your family, interact with your kids, and I saw unity. I saw joy. And it was beautiful, man. I mean, when we see that, it's a beautiful thing to behold. They weren't at each other's throats. They weren't throwing dishes at each other. I would have left. I would have cried. But they were having fun as a family, laughing together. And I was like, this is just the norm for this family. I mean, they're just they're hanging out. They're loving on each other. They were united. And it was a beautiful thing to behold. Here's my question. When the world, right, when outsiders look at Kelty's First Baptist Church, what do they see? Do they see that? Do they see a church that is united? Because the Lord will use that to point the world to the gospel. Amen? Friends, be united. Work together side by side to advance the gospel. If you're at odds with somebody today, repent of that. Brothers and sisters, if you know Christians in this body who are at odds, help them, come alongside them. Because again, without unity, there is no gospel ministry. Let me end with this question, and I'm going to pray. Have you trusted in Jesus? What did we learn about the gospel this morning? When we trust in Jesus, we are vertically reconciled to God and horizontally brought into the family of God. Amen? We're true Joy is found. True peace is found. And so if you've not trusted in Jesus, our beautiful Savior, who lived the life we could not live and died the death we deserve at the cross and then rose again, proving all his claims to be true and that his saving work worked. If you have not done that, like Paul, I would entreat you. I beg, turn from your sin. Stop going your way. And go God's way by trusting in Jesus for salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news that brings both vertical and horizontal reconciliation. Help us as a church to be one, Father, as you and the Son are one, so that the world may know that, Father, you sent the Son, that he is the promised Savior King who lived and died and rose again. Father, if there are believers here today who are at odds, help us as a church to gently restore them, to come alongside them, to help them have the mind, the attitude, and the values of Jesus so that we as a church can advance the gospel together for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.